I know that as a church we are committed together to know that all of Scripture is important. But there's a particular Scripture that says to us that the one who reads it will be blessed, and those who hear it and take it to heart will also be blessed. So this morning I would humbly like to say that that will be us. I invite you to stand with me as we read this word. The revelation, the apocalypse from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And then John goes on. Look. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. All the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, those words begin for us a tremendous picture of Jesus not only raised from the dead, but seated at your right hand in power and in glory. And may we humbly ask this morning, that as we've read and listened to your words, and take it to heart, that we will know your blessing. Thank you for Jesus this morning, and realize that he helps us understand life from A to Z, because he is, as he says, Alpha and Omega. Amen. It's always a good strategy on the part of those who teach in classrooms or wherever it might be to figure out where the people have been listening over the last couple of weeks. Okay? So here's our test. What's my favorite television program? Everything. No, it's not everything. Jeopardy. Jeopardy. So I was watching Jeopardy this past week, and it was once again the college championships. I like to pit my mind against these very, very bright young people. And to get to the final Jeopardy question, and if you know Jeopardy, the final Jeopardy question, before you get the question, you have to decide how much of your winnings you are going to put down. It can be a little, it can be none, or it can be everything. And so, um, here was the question. 
Do you win or lose on the final question? Here is the question. Taken from the third letter in the Greek alphabet. This word means to cover everything. What's the answer? You guys would be no good in jeopardy. I don't want you on my team. Taken from the third letter of the Greek alphabet. That's gamma, but what's the word? The answer. I bet everything on that. The word is gamut. G-A-M-U-T. You know that word? So what's the Chinese for gamut? Oh, you know. Gamut is the word that covers, it's taken from alphabet and gamma, third letter of the Greek alphabet. And it's taken from, it's this idea that it covers everything. And as we'll see this morning, it helps us see everything from A to Z. And that's exactly how the Apostle John describes Jesus. Three times in the book of Revelation, we read the first one. John declares who Jesus is. He's saying that everything we look for, we will find in Jesus. And he uses two Greek letters. Alpha is, of course, the first letter. Omega is the last letter and of the Greek alphabet. And the description comes three times. And through the book of John. And they kind of build on each other. Here's how they are. It begins in 1 and 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. That's where it starts. And then later, almost chapter 21, chapter it adds to that, it says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then in the next chapter, 22, it says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So John sort of builds up what he's trying to teach us about Jesus. Each builds on the other. Look at them for just a moment. Alpha and Omega are very simply the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Everything from A to Z. It's the whole gamut of stuff. It's exactly what Jesus, how John describes Jesus. And then he says to that, he is the beginning and the end. Get some Greek lessons, by the way, this morning. You've got to kind of track with the Greek words. The, the Greek word for beginning is the word arche, from, we get our, from which we get our English word architect. The architect is the one who sees things in the beginning and sees in his mind what he wants to build. And then he says he's the beginning and the end. By the way, Hebrews chapter 12 also says of Jesus that he's the author of our faith. That's the same word architect again. And then he's the end. So the word you may know, you might know, the Greek word is telos, and in English it gives a word teleology. And teleology is when we have a final goal for something. When we say, well, what's the purpose of this? What is all this driving for? Where are we going with this? When you say statements like that, or questions like that, you're talking about teleology. You're talking about what the end goal is in mind. What is the purpose of what we're trying to do? Um, when our son Peter, uh, now in his upper 30s, hard to believe, but still, uh, when he was about three or four, when Peter was a little boy, Peter loved to gather up the, the little scraps of wood I had left from my various woodworking projects. Peter loved to gather those up with some hammer and the little nails and so on, and he loved to build things out of scraps of wood. I remember one day we had a workman come to the house to do something. And so he thought, this workman obviously thought it would be nice to talk to this little boy. And so he said to him, hey, Sonny, what are you building? And in a way that just three and four-year-old boys can look at someone very, very seriously. I mean, again, they can just kill them with a look. Peter looked at him and said to him, how do I know? I'm not finished yet. 
I think a lot of us, that's our attitude in life. See, Peter liked teleology. I wouldn't tell him that. By the way, three-year-old little boy, do you know you like teleology? I don't know. I'm not finished yet. But I have a sense that sometimes it comes to that in our lives. What are we trying to do? I don't know. I'm not finished yet. When it comes to light, we need teleology. We need a sense of purpose. We need a sense of meaning. Stephen Covey, um, who's kind of the business guru, says everything is created twice. Once in the mind and then in action. He says we start at the end and we work back. And to start at the end is the telos. That's the teleology. And then John says, he, Jesus is also the first and the last. The Greek word for first is protas. And when you're designing a new car or something like that, you may build a prototype. And the end is obviously that which comes sense of finality. Now, you're seeing with me that each time Jesus says one of these I am statements, he is going back to a definition or a statement that God has made about himself in the Old Testament. And Jesus is always going back to saying, this is who God is, and that's who I am. So he's connecting himself to the person of his Father. And this, um, this statement goes back to the book of Isaiah. I am the first and the last. He says, apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. And so Jesus is always aligning himself with the person and the purposes and the character of our God and his Father. So Jesus is saying that he's at the beginning of life and he's at the end. And he also monitors everything that's in between. We're going to unpack this this morning in three major statements. And what you need to see with me is that we start with the big one, and then each one after that nests within the others. They all kind of go together. Um, So we start with the largest perspective. And the largest perspective that I think we can start with, Edmund led us worship this morning for that, is creation. That's the stage upon which we walk in our world. It begins in the beginning. And to be honest, we don't know how this complex process all happened. There was no TV crew waiting to bring the event to the 6 o'clock news. And we tend to think that God was standing all alone, looking over the chaos of whatever there was and bringing it from chaos to cosmos. That means order. But if we read the scriptures more closely, Jesus was also standing and involved in creation. It says in the Gospel of John, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then it says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And it reminds us of the essential truth that Jesus existed before the world was. He stood with the Father at the beginning of creation. He, in fact, is the agent of creation. Everything happens through him. The uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle calls this the first cause. Jesus is also the one who holds everything together. It is the activity of the mind of Jesus which is always at work creating and keeps creating cosmos, order. The universe is not random. The laws of the universe, such as the law of gravity, don't decide to work one day and not work the next day. 
We could not live, frankly, in such a, 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 a world of, that was um, arbitrary. We need a world that is ordered. And Jesus is the one who keeps things in order in cosmos. says in Colossians, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers, rulers, authorities. It says all things have been created through Him and for Him. And then Colossians 1.7 says, beautiful verse, He is before all things. And then it says, and in him all things hold together. You got that? Jesus is the glue that holds all of this thing called creation and world and life together. He holds it all together. And I think it's by the ongoing activity of his mind. Jesus keeps thinking about things, and in thinking about them, he holds them together. Jesus did not come into existence at his birth. Even at creation. He tells us in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And no, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is asking to be returned to the existence and the glory which he had before creation. So Christ stands as the bookend. See that? He is the bookends, the Alpha and Omega of creation, giving it the order and the stability of his being. When God and Christ created, they created out of love and for love. And their desire is to move all creation in the direction of their love. Now that's not just words of correct theology or good theology. This is the language of praise and adoration. We sung that this morning as Edmund Ladders, with all creation I will sing. And so we have to learn to join the chorus and the symphony of all of creation and worship God and Christ. So that's the first bookend, set of bookends. Creation's in there. But the landscape of creation is empty, ready for some new occupants. So God says, let us make man, he means humanity, and our image. And so... <coughs> nestled inside creation we find the next movement and that is our human history nestled within creation is human history and once again it has a beginning and is an end um, Genesis 1.27 marvelous verse and it is simply three lines of Hebrew poetry and each line has four beats to it so God created mankind in his own image. Line one. Second line, in the image of God, he created them. Third line, male and female, he created them. And so here we have creation, the conception of uh, three great things that form us and shape us and create us as human beings. I think the first one's personality. The second one is identity. And the third one is our sexuality. And so it reminds us that in the flow of human history, human history is linear. It is teleological. There's that word again. It means that history is going somewhere. It is not cyclical. So reincarnation in all of its varieties is really in conflict with the truth of God. The idea of reincarnation has its beginnings in India. From 800 to about 1,000 years B.C. 
It's closely associated with the Eastern concept of karma. The laws of karma link the evil deeds of a past life to a present or future life. So the point is, as people talk, we, we want to build up good karma in this life for the next life. And the objective, the goal of, of all reincarnation is ultimately to fuse with God and to become God. And some religions talk about the wheel of life that we're on going round and round. You know where you will find that? You know who promotes that? Disney. The Lion King. Go back to some of the music and the songs and the Lion King. And you'll get that idea. Christianity stands opposed to any kind of reincarnation. The idea of a wheel of life. Because history is linear in the Bible. It's going somewhere. There is a final act that still is to be played out. Paul um, says in a sermon to this sophisticated city of Athens, the city of wisdom, he says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. History is linear and God has appointed a day in this history when things will come to a place of judgment. So a linear view of history puts the triumphs and the tragedies of the human experience in the context of the final act of God. In human history, there have been many triumphs, discoveries and exploits that have advanced the cause of human life. There's been medical breakthroughs in all kinds of areas. Expeditions to climb Everest, to cross Antarctica, to go to the moon. All kind of large and small conquests that have moved us ahead in this human experience. There have also been days of tragedy and darkness. World wars. The Holocaust. Um, I've been in Israel a couple of times and if I was to take you there, one of the, probably the saddest trip I've ever been on one afternoon was to what is called Yad Vashem, which in, in Hebrew means the heroes. And Yad Vashem is the memorial to the Holocaust. Um, for what Israel suffered in the Second World War. And there's a, there's a little synagogue there at the end of Yad Vashem. And it's a synagogue that is dedicated to the children who die in the camps. And at the door of the synagogue is this a huge, huge pile of shoes. And it's all of the shoes that they got from the children who died in the camps. I'll tell you, I just broke down and cried to see this pile of shoes that belong to children. There's been evidence of unimaginable cruelty in places like Cambodia. If you've been watching the news this past week, a terrorist in France who first killed three soldiers and then three children and a rabbi um, going to a Jewish children's school in France. And has God leave you wondering how could one human being do such terrible things to another human being? In the news at night out of Ontario, there have been 
working through the um, this trial and interior of this somehow this couple, this man and woman, trying to decide who was it hammered a little girl, Tori Stafford, to death. Which one of them actually took the hammer and rained blows down on her head to kill her? I can hardly watch that anymore. That just absolutely breaks my heart. So there have been moments of splendor and victory. There have been dark stains of tragedy and cruelty. Each reminding us in different ways that as a race we have not arrived. And so we should not become proud or arrogant. History does not reach its zenith because of our discoveries. And history does not end because of our evil. History is simply bigger than us. And God is the one, it says in Acts 17, in whom we live and move and have our being. We see these two extremes as soon as we enter Holy Week. It begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And if that is all we read, we would say that his life humanly was a great success. But it ends with his death. And if that is all we read, we would say his life is a colossal failure. But these two events have to be seen in the larger context and framework of what God is doing in history. And even as they hammer the last nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, they thought to themselves, well, that's the end of that. But it was not over. God still had resurrection in his mind. History was not finished. And the one they nailed to the cross will soon stand when everything else has fallen. We'll celebrate that soon on Easter Sunday. So there's creation. And then there's human history. And then nestled within that is our third movement this morning, which is very frankly our own story, which is our own personal pilgrimage. Nestled within this grand sweep of history are our own small lives, our personal story, planted like a tiny fragment of time within this grand sweep of time. And so we need another scripture to enlarge this idea of Christ being at the beginning and the end of our story, of our lives. And Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says to them, um, as he talks with thankfulness and prayer, that God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the verse that I know well. It's kind of branded um, into my heart and into my life. Because when I was baptized as a young believer in my teenage years in a church in Baptist church in Glasgow in Scotland, that was the verse that was prayed over me in, my, in the baptistry. That Tom, God is beginning a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. And we should have almost breathtaking understanding of what it says in Ephesians. It says that God chose us in Christ. You got this one? Before the foundation of the world. Now there's a reason. It is so that we should be holy and blameless. You grasp that for a moment. Sit back and think about that. That God has chosen us. Put your name in there. God has chosen me. Alfred. And Willis. And Winnie. And Cindy. And Jennifer. And Rosita. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. 
teaching us that God's love for us and our faith in Christ did not begin the day that we accepted Christ. But rather it was formed, it was born, it was conceived in the heart of God before the very beginning of time. That there was a cross on the heart of God before there was a cross on the hill Calvary. Now that is not to make us proud or arrogant. It is the very opposite. It is to move us with humility and with gratitude because He's chosen us, He says, to make us holy and blameless. And every one of us this morning, you need to know in your own life, you have a personal story. And it is unique. And it is important. Because it is your story. It is how God has worked in your life. You may not be famous in all kinds of ways. But your story is important to God. Your story is important to other people. Don't be ashamed of that. Your story is important in in the history of this church. Jesus is not only at the beginning of our life. Jesus is also the finisher. So these two pictures of Jesus, author, finisher, Alpha and Omega, they form a rainbow over our lives, inviting us to walk and to live and to move under the arch of His safety and His protection. That's not just a theological truth. That is a truth to be applied and understood and lived out every day. Here's what it means. It means that there's nothing I will face in a day that God does not know about. He is the one who is ahead of me every step of the way. You got that? There's nothing you or I can face in a day that God does not know about. He's at the beginning and the end of that, whatever it is. It also means that there's nothing I will face in a day that I will have to face alone. Jesus has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Some of you, as I've gotten to know you, I know you've gone through some difficult times and medical issues or family, whatever it might be. There's nothing that you will have to face alone. Again, there's nothing I will face in a day which is beyond the strength God gives me. And which is beyond His love for me. There's nothing I will face in a day that God will not come alongside me and Tom and say, Tom, I will give you the strength at this moment, this day, or whatever that is. And there's nothing that's beyond His love. I don't care what life throws at us. There is nothing that's beyond His love. And so you see, Jesus stands to the bookends of our own life. Giving our lives an access for purpose and meaning. Giving our lives direction. The certainty that in our life we are going somewhere in this history. Because without this sense of beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, we are doomed, doomed to be little more than wanderers. We're simply adrift. Living without a map and living without a destination. At best, this leads to what's called existentialism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And at worst, it leads to what's called nihilism, which means we have nothing to live for and nothing worth dying for. And it's that sad conclusion that tragically, tragically, has led some people to suicide. So Alpha and Omega... In that statement, Jesus is 
answer some of the deepest questions of the human heart. Which is, how can we live and understand life from A to Z, this whole gamut of the human experience? Questions like, what's the first chapter of our history of the human race? And what will be the last chapter? What is our beginning and our origin? What is our destiny? What is our telos? Can you live with teleology? Jesus says that all of these critical questions are wrapped up in who he is. He stands at the beginning, and he will stand at the end. He is Arche, the architect, and the telos. And this bit in between which we call life is not a, rap, a random haphazard jigsaw puzzle. But rather it can be lived with meaning, with purpose, with direction, and with hope. One of our sons, for reasons which I frankly don't understand, has a number of times ran in what's called the Iron Man. If you know what the Iron Man is, the Iron Man is, several people kind of chuckled, you know, the Iron Man is you swim for about, I don't know, four miles or something, and then you do a, a road race on bikes for over 100 kilometers, and then just when you think you are ready to quit, you have a marathon to run. Okay. And if you finish, as Peter has done several times, if you finish, in addition to getting a medal, you get a t-shirt. I think you deserve a t-shirt, frankly, but you get a t-shirt. A t-shirt has a great word on it. One word, t-shirt just says, very simply, finisher. Finisher. That's what you got. Stand with me. So the final act of our lives is to finish well. I don't know if the Apostle Paul ever ran the Iron Man. I don't think so. But he knew he would get a t-shirt. More than a t-shirt. And it would say finisher. Because he writes to Timothy who is a young pastor. And says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to the only, but also to all those that have loved His appearing. Can you walk this day? Can you follow Jesus this week, who is the beginning and the end, so that one day you'll get a t-shirt that says, Finisher.